Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Carl Thompson. He is building teams, instilling passion, and he's driven by empathy. And specifically, he's the VP of Coaching and Development at Invisible Technologies. Uh, and right now, his job is to figure out what that means. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. I appreciate it. I've been following you for a little bit in my short-lived career at Invisible, and um, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. And so uh, what is, co well, let's, let's start it off like, because I want to talk about what it means at Invisible, but let's just talk about what coaching and development is too. What is coaching and development? Yeah, that's great. I, th I think those terms can absolutely mean everything, essentially. And I mean, at, in essence, or, or it can mean almost nothing, right? And um, so that's why I say my job is first and foremost to figure out what the hell that means here at Invisible or anywhere else in, in for that matter. And I think what it really means is that coaching and development can really exist on those two planes of intersection between theory, desire, what kind of people ought we to be, and the application of who we actually are, and actionable items that manifest those theories. Mm, very cool. Uh, I have never heard of, of the function of coaching and development, but having been a massage therapist myself and been like in that general area of coaches and having a lot of great coaches and, and therapists and other people like that, I've never seen it at a business, but that just might be my ignorance in terms of businesses. Is it a normal role at, at businesses or is Invisible doing something contrarian again, which I love? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely the latter of those two, right? And kudos to Francis. In my conversations with Francis and both Ben, this is a completely made-up role. That There was no existence of this position prior to my arrival. Um, I think the, the conclusion there was, we don't know why you belong here, but we think you belong here. And so let's be creative and figure out what we could do to at least open the door. And then you kind of have to create your own path doing so. That is so exciting. I love it. Um, I think I think I'm probably at Invisible for a similar reason. Uh, and 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 it goes back, I think, to Francis's philosophy. Uh, he's very much a, a, a Platonist, and I'm going to totally butcher this. Um, you know, the theory of forms. 
uh, and that like the 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 all the representations we have of all of these different things in the physical world are all based off of these abstract forms that are sort of like eternal and stuff like that. So I love it that you, there's a there's a form at invisible for you, and you're manifesting that form out of out of nothing, out of just like this kind of sense, this intuition that Francis and Bed have that you should belong here and figure it out. And so what, what add invisible, what is kind of your first inclination as to what coaching and development is going to be? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I've been here 30 days. All right. And so in, in the past 30 days, what I've tried to do is to apply myself in several of the different areas in both um, kind of a, a coaching philosophy, but also in just raw application. Right. Where can I take the ball across the goal line in terms of pragmatic initiatives and actionable items? And how do I then because that's where you establish the equity of coaching. Right. I mean, I can come in from the outside and, and say a bunch of neat things. I'm not sure how useful those are. But if I'm a grinder, so to speak, if I work hard and if I'm there when the lights are on, and there to turn lights off. And then you build some street equity to actually be able to coach and apply those things. And so that's uh, my first initiative is to find those spots in the people team, in the operations, in uh, perhaps growth, you know, in all of those spots, find avenues that I can actually be of real assistance, whether that is pedantic work or it's higher level work. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to me. I'm agnostic on the terms. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, what you said about equity of coaching and it's uh it reminds me of another kind of coach in our sphere david klein uh and it was so interesting to see that uh, we did the offsite in barcelona in march um and it was so interesting we, <laughs> we had a few different coaches but none of them resonated with invisible in the same way that dave did so dave mm -hmm. came in and you could just feel it inside the room that people really respected him, that he had that street cred. Uh, and uh, it's so interesting that you spoke to that. And what do you think the, what do you think that is? Like, um, let me, so what are the ways in which we can detract from that street cred and add to it? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely such a great question. And I, and I have, so everything you see in terms of the, Dave Klein, for instance, I I concur. I sat in one of his sessions very recently, and I was just impressed with his eloquence of delivery. And and I and I hate to leave out Mars. Actually, it's a dynamic duo. Yeah, yeah. He and his wife both do this coaching thing. Um, it's actually very well done. The interaction is intuitive, but also it's the tip of the iceberg. It's very obvious to me that he's had decades of thinking in this manner, right? And that's where the equity comes from. Right. And so you could almost say that the equity or street cred is built over your life and how it manifests on where you presently land is just the result of that work that you've done prior and the aggregates, you know, the aggregation of that. So I, I really like um, pointing to Dave in that manner because I agree uh, com completely. I was very impressed. I'm very impressed with he and his wife and the way they, they manage the coaching thing. Mm -hmm. So I think if you can think of coaching as the result of whatever gravitational core you've developed over many years, there's your street equity. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the core, how weak gravity comes, the further away from the core you are is, is really how that manifests. 
And this is kind of just in general, but I've always kind of wondered about this specifically is that there's this, this long-term experience that essentially builds this equity that you're talking about. And then there's natural talent that can show up in young people. It can show up in older people, but in the young people who haven't had an experience, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of really amazing talent at, at Invisible all over the world. And this is one of the things I love about Francis is that he's able to, and a lot of the other people on the team is he's able to see that in ways that a lot of people kind of like undervalue people basically. And so he's able to see that and pull the diamonds out of the rough. Um, so uh, how can somebody who doesn't have that much experience learn how to kind of not necessarily create equity, but actually just do an effective job at their in their lives and their work um, uh, without having that long experience? And like, well, and and there's that question, but there's also the the kind of principles about how to handle talent. Uh, I don't have this isn't like a really specific question, but anything you have to say about this, 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 uh, the, the raw talent versus experience. Yeah, it's such a great question as well. I'm going to try not to be long winded about it, um, but I'm going to make a couple of other I'm going to draw from a couple of other experiences that are pretty pragmatic in terms of talent. Um, I coach lacrosse and I have done that for about 15 years. Um, I coached swimming before that, and I also have a pretty long experience in conducting, um, which is talent management, right? And the the short and skinny of it is everybody has a certain amount, how high their ceiling is. Everybody's got that. And some people you meet and you know that's a 25-foot ceiling on that little guy. Mm -hmm. And some guys you meet and it's a six-foot ceiling. Right. And so we're talking about maximizing your potential. Right. And you can still build a strong gravitational core with a six foot ceiling. But at some point, you will have to recognize you don't have a 25 foot ceiling. Right. Because others see that about you before you see that about you. Right. And so as a coach, my job is to help them identify how high their ceiling is mm. and what they have to do in terms of discipline practice manifestation to maximize their ceilings. Mm. But you you do have to be pretty upfront. Like, here's what I perceive your ceiling to be. Let's maximize it, right? Mm. And and there, uh, what you're getting at really with that ceiling is a limitation. And, and limitations are really interesting because they're constraints and creativity is, is brought from constraints. So, and 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 like we're talking about in this defined range, you know, maybe somebody's a a team lead of all these agents and stuff like that, and their ability to transcend the their that that specific role goes, you know, maybe three feet higher uh, with this kind of maximizing potential. Uh, but then there are all these other avenues that they could be more applicable in, like they could transfer over to something else. And it kind of gets into a little bit of destiny as well. Like, what is your destiny? Uh, uh, yeah. Could you talk more about this? Because I know that you've 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 kind of been in uh, management or executive level at other organizations and seen it from the high level. And now you're going in and you're in this coaching thing, which is transcendent and cross disciplinary. And um, can you talk more about destiny and like what that is to you and what that means? Oh, that's fantastic. Um... Okay, something something you said that that uh, kind of triggered in me is your definition of creativity, which I love. Right, um, in the Poetics of Music, written by Igor Stravinsky, very uh, famous twentieth-century composer, one of my favorite composers of all time, um, he wrote a piece for his very good friend who was moving to go live with him in L.A. and died on the way, Dylan oh. Thomas. Wow. 
Um, and he wrote a piece called In Memoriam Dylan Thomas. And he talks a little bit about the creativity there in there because it is scored for trombones and tenor. That's it. Hmm. Well, that is, in essence, the nature of creativity, right? You're not creative unless you have those constraints and borders for which you are stretching, obliterating, re, you know, modifying. And in that creativity and in your ability to maximize your understanding and your intersection with creativity, the result is your destiny. Mm. Mm. Destiny cannot be the vehicle. It's the result. It's the byproduct. Beautiful. That's very cool. <laughs> uh, destiny is the result. Um, and uh, is fate the same thing as destiny? Do you believe in fate? I do believe in fate because it's the only way I can recognize the unexplainable things that happen serendipitously, <laughs> right? So what, however I want to reconcile that in my own imagination, which admittedly is very limited, I'm one human, right? Uh, fate, destiny, deity, energy, limitless, all of those things belong to the same ilk that once I put a label on it, I've limited it, right? And I've limited my potential to identify it. Um, it, that can also lead to paralysis, which is not my intent as well, right? You have to identify it to move. And the irony is in identifying, you limit your movement. So you have to reconcile that always. Uh, so good. And so this gets us into sort of like theory versus practice, because the the practice is very pragmatic. It's right in front of us. It's the thing that we need to do right now, today, this week, everything like that. And then the theory is this sort of like abstract world that we spend a lot of time in looking at a third per uh, th as a third person kind of from a strategic lens about what we're doing and where it fits into the greater picture of not only our job, but our lives and like the world and history and stuff, stuff like that. What is your take on theory and what is your take on practice and what role does coaching play in that in that um, area? Yeah. So I believe theory and practice cannot exist fully and well without each other. Right. They are the yin and the yang. There are moments and phases in our life where we have to be concentrated on one more than the other, right? And certainly my life demonstrates that in all the phases that I can reflect on and probably currently as well, right? And in 10 years, I'll reflect on this, right? I'm 58 years old. I have no expertise <laughs> by now. It's like at the end of, of Kierkegaard's uh, I can't remember. Was that notes from the underground? I think it was. But by the end, he says, what does he say? I now know that I don't know. Right. Um, I am beginning to taste the essence of I really just don't know. Right. And so where theory and practice meet is the bridge between the two planets. We one, we live on and two, we want to be on mm -hmm. um, the kind of person we ought to be. The kind of leader we want to be, the kind of leader I am. Um, my time has to be spent in between those two planets, building the means to get from one to the other, which I may never get to, right? Obviously. Yeah. And it goes back to that potential. So, mm -hmm. so how, cause, cause we have the, we have who we are, we have who we think we are, that limitation of our minds about who we think we are, which isn't who we are. Then we have where we want to be. Um, uh, and then there's, then there's the where we would like to be that we're no way going to reach at all. And then we've got where we want to be, where we may actually be able to reach. And then there's the flip side to that, which is where we where we don't want to be, uh, but where we fear that we will be. 
Um, and, uh, and, and so all, all between all those different things, there's that potential in the middle and there's all these different paths. And if you believe in free will, um, then, you know, like your, your ability to determine those paths is, is there. But then again, also, if you believe in not just necessarily free will, but also like a larger context of whether spirit or, or God, or just like the universe in general, that's something bigger than us individuals, that there's also sort of limit there placed as well by, but uh, but and in some ways that if 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 we are that spirit then we're in some we can transcend a lot of the limitations that we that we that we consider ourselves to have. Um, so how does somebody manifest their potential knowing this just like crazy complex world in in, in which we're resting? How how does that work? I don't you know that's a I don't know how that works. I'm going to start with that, but I can tell you how it has worked for me. <laughs> right. And I'm gonna I'm gonna draw upon my experience as a parent. Okay, I have four children, three daughters and a son. They're all exceptional human beings. I, I'm very proud of them. Um, we're all dorks. So before you conjure some image that we're the cool kids, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the raising of those four children, there's obviously this in, you know this image that I've projected on being a great dad and wanting to further them and having providing them in terms of provision, providing them with something better than I had, mm -hmm. right? Um, perpetuating their existence and awareness and conscientiousness in a way earlier than I did, you know, all those things that we perceive to be better. But honestly, I, I, I feel like one of my proudest things is the kind of father I am. And that was a day at a time. Mm. Once, once I went to the world of who I think I want to be, then my, all of a sudden my, my priority shifted to my image. Right. And, and that's a fundamental mistake. We do it all the time. I do it all the time. I'm not exempt from that, right? I'm guilty of that all the time. But if I have something in my head that says, wait, 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 that's about me, right? And this is not about me. How do I perpetuate them? There's your empathy, right? And what drives that empathy is my unbelievable sense of love for my children that I didn't know that as a human being, I had the capacity to have, mm -hmm. right? Until I had them, mm -hmm. right? Until I had them in front of me which is the manifestation of something very pragmatic. Wow. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, it, and you talked about love there and that's really interesting because I've heard it many times that parents say that, that, that first moment where you have a child and, and you, there's that immediate primal reaction that it, but it also transcends the animal. I think like there's parts of us that, that are like beyond just that mere animal sense that this is my this is my kin this, it's something more than that it feels like uh and and it's really beautiful and then it goes back into potential as well and the image and I, and and the 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 creating an image and the day-to-day -day thing that's what i want to talk about now how so invisible is a very very fast-paced environment um there is a lot of stress but I, what I love about it is that there is also a lot of recognition of that stress. And as long as we're able to make ourselves explicit, uh, we, there's a lot of room to kind of, as long as there's communication, we can essentially like communicate like that this may not be the best thing for me and, and, and all those, all those different things. So how can we, um, what's the theory as it relates to getting stuff done in a high stress environment with a lot of creativity, a lot of pressure, a lot of operating pressure, pressure, particularly as hyper growth, anything you can say uh, to invisible people about um, like how to really like maximize their ability to um, 
not necessarily win in that day to day, but thrive, uh, not only survive, but thrive. Yeah. Well, I think we, I think the paradigms or definitions that we've provided over the years for what is stressful has changed. Hmm. Right. And I think pressure, stress, coals to diamonds is not only necessary for that thriving, it's essential, mm-hmm. right? I don't perceive invisible to be different because of that. I perceive it to be just another part of our ecosystem in which we have to do what we do. I don't feel, I'm, I'm very busy. There's a lot on my plate. And I think there's a lot on, you know, I, I think of a couple of people, Lauren, for instance, are really head of ops. She's quite brilliant and quite able and, she's under a lot of duress and stress. People are under a lot of stress. So I don't want to undermine that. But I think this is the essence of living, right? The innocuous nature of creating worlds where it's convenient, easy, and non-stressful is a weird existence to want to strive for. So I love this arena, (laughs) but I'm a crazy person, I think. (laughs) I'll have you on Crazy Wisdom next. Uh, I feel like we could have a, a very good conversation on Crazy Wisdom about a lot of different stuff as well. Go further into the into the ether. Um, uh, so there's one book called The Upside of Stress that really goes into this, uh, and it is it is so interesting that we live in this age age, and this is going to change with AI. And I would love to understand your 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 understanding of AI, either either you know just like as an outside observer, or if you if you've been working in AI or know things, or if you're like if you really like it, I'd like to hear that as well. But last, uh, probably since the invention of the railroads and electricity and uh, all these different things and agricultural practices, like our lives have become uh, uh, very comfortable and and technology keeps on offering these new conveniences that are essentially making life less less and less stressful. And the strange thing about that is that it, it, it is creating a world where people are existentially less happy and existentially less motivated. And, 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 and I do not find that at all invisible. It feels like everybody is, is, is extremely motivated by deep meaning um, because it is, we are part of this hyper growth startup. Uh, and do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, I don't have a specific question about that. Uh, and we could talk about a more philosophical lens and where's it, where it's going in AI and bring it back to invisible. But do you have anything interesting to say about that? Yeah, I have found that, um, so far in my 30 days, right? So let's, let's look through the lens and understand the scope of my, the very narrow scope of 30 days, that there is a very fascinating red thread through the people and the types of people here at Invisible, for sure. Fascinating group of people, very diverse. And I don't mean in a singular sense, uh, like skin color or socioeconomic. I mean, diverse even within their each individuals, people that like to cook and also do X and do Y and do Z and they're at Invisible, right? The diversity of each one of these beings, I, f- I have found it incredibly fascinating that uh, I was explaining to my son in, in when I was interviewing, and courting with Invisible, I was explaining to him some of the people that I had met and how enthralled I was. And he's 16. And he said to me, oh, they sound like a bunch of yous. <laughs> and I, you know, and I didn't even think about that. You know, my thought was like, 
my default was like, wow, look how impressive all these people are. Could I even fit? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that, that, you know, like everybody else, I suffer from a little bit of that imposter syndrome and the fear of imposter. Right. And so um, I actually diligently work against that all the time because I know that small things that I accomplish eradicate those, those things and those inclinations. But to go back to that whole mechanism of comfort, I have fought, fought that all my life. I don't ever take the easy path to fault, no doubt. I like working and grinding at something and coming out on the other end and what I've grown and what's been forged through the fire. Um, for instance, I, I'm, again, I'm 58, but I like to stay in relatively good shape, fitness. When I go work out, and I'm going to have to change this soon because I'm feeling it in, in repercussions greater than normal or than in the past, but I like to work out until I go deaf. That's what I call it. I, I push myself so hard that I absolutely can't hear anymore. Wow. Right? Interesting. And um, and, and that's every workout for me. I, that's, I will push myself to the hilt. Um, I don't know that my heart can take that once I get to be 70 or 75, but it is the way I go, right? And, and in that, just, you know, sampling of, of an insight of my neuroses there. <laughs> um, it's the way I've learned to navigate the world um, with so many layers from people that I have met, introducing layers and layers of nuance, decorum, and deference. Because mm -hmm. in its raw state, that is annoying as hell. Nobody wants to be around that guy who's had two cups of coffee. Nobody, <laughs> you know? So I've had to I've had to impose learning from mm. other people observations these layers of decorum delivery mechanism this is what I admire about Dave his delivery mechanism is so eloquent right um, that I've had to mimic that for a time until I could adopt it as my own it's just like learning to play the piano you have to be proficient enough at your mechanism before you can improvise right and so the whole goal in whatever aspect I'm doing is to get to a place where I can improvise mm. right. And then comfort and non-comfort, ease, it's not even an issue. You've yeah. displaced it, right? It's gone. Very interesting. Okay, I have about like seven different follow-up questions we can go. Yeah, into. Sorry, <laughs> that was a lot. Oh, yeah. This is great, this is the, exactly. Exact. So you talked a lot about imposter syndrome and um, I have it as well. I still have it. Uh, and this was the first like large organization that I entered and had to, had to work with. And there were a whole bunch of intense people that I had to, that I like felt like, Oh, you know, I've, I've, I, I'm an intense person as well, but but um, I, I think my intensity comes off as somewhat maybe uh, um, cushioned uh, or so, something like that. Like uh, like it's not a direct like intensity where I'm like really aggressive or or anything like that. Um, and so I felt a lot of that imposter syndrome. Uh, and as you said, those small wins uh, are really interesting because it's like I have actually contributed a lot. And, and so much has been about like recognizing the contributions instead of just trying to fill this deep hole of like, uh, what is it when people look at, uh, look for outside approval and outside all these different things and like try to fill that because that that can't be filled with those things. It's like an internal no. switch in my head. Uh, and, uh, and so I would love to talk about, we have this as the individual and then there's the collective. And so I guess this is more, particularly for my interest right now, because that is the first time I've joined a larger collective group of people and they all are very individual and contrarian and, and which I really like. So I understand, I understand these people, 
but it's also being connected to people in the, in a larger community and group. Um, can you talk more about like from coaching, either theory or practice that you've learned about how to integrate an individual inside this larger group? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating puzzle to solve, right? And it speaks to the question of can, can good culture, intimate culture scale? That's really the question, right? At heart is, is we want to not lose the intimacy and the power of how we moved as a company of 50 or 100, right? Now that we're approaching 3,000, can we move in the same way? Well, from an objective standpoint, no, no. <laughs> Whales don't move like minnows, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? They just don't, yep. but they move and they move well, right? So, the, so I think I'm not sure that I've able to, ever been able to vet this out beyond two to 300 people, right? The largest groups I've ever conducted were about 300, right? Um, the largest teams I've ever had, the swim team, the swim team was probably 180 kids, right? Football teams have a little bit over 100. Lacrosse has 30 or 40, much easier to manage. So in that, you have these samples of what it means for individuals to be connected in a matrix to make the sum of it move in a greater way than the individual could. We all understand that. The puzzle is in that matrix, what is it building between, right? We have entities, we can call them individuals, we can call them departments, we call them archetypes, we call them personality types, whatever, however you wanna look at the individual kind of qualities of those entities and the breakup of that entity, right? How do you, the, it's the connective tissue between one and the other that needs the building. I don't care how much you lift, I don't care how much you run, if you're not building your, your ligaments, you're gonna tear. The muscles are too, I've grown too far. Your quads are too overdeveloped, right? Um, so the balance of that is that the connective tissue builds slower. It's a slower build. And it has to be intentional, mm -hmm. right? And, and those are great theories. So how do I practice that as a coach, right? And for me, um, and I'm going to give you just a, a small smittering of context here that I, I, I don't think I, we have time or I have an inclination to go into further, but I grew up in a, an abuse to kid. I was mm. an abused kid. Mm. I have a lot of that abandonment, insecurity, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome. I have to prove myself. Please love me. All that shit, right? That has happened over the decades. So for me, my vehicle through which I'm able to apply my coaching is to identify the person in front of me and, and think about what is it that they're able to hear? What is it that they need for me to do? Like one thing to do for them. Let's do that. Now that's one plank of the bridge, or maybe it's just a piece of rope on the handrail. Who knows? In the big picture, we won't know how significant it was until reflection. Yeah. We don't know it. So just build, right? It's almost myopic and single-mindedness. And then before you know it, you look up and you have connective tissue, right? If I build the right kind of team or I teach the right kind of principles in vocal or string technique or whatever, I'm going to look up one day and the result, which is great, or wins or losses or a great concert or raising money is a result of the one by one building that we've done. That's kind of my theory and practice and where they intersect. And it's what I try to practice really in everything I do. I fail at it. 
all the time. So I, I just don't want to pretend like I'm some kind of guru. I'm not, yeah, yeah. But, I, but, I, but I've had these thoughts and I've been fortunate enough to be in environments where I could practice them. Yeah. And, 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 and as you said, that was a perfect analysis of invisible right now growing really quickly. Part of my role is the knowledge management part of your role is coaching and development. Uh, and also I think it's going to be big with the people, the training development team, uh, people team and the training development team as well is just like, as we grow, particularly in a remote environment, how do you, because in a, in an office, if we're all in the office together, that connective tissue, which I think you're talking about as more of like this, you know, like a metaphor, the connections between you and me, the connections between us two and the larger organization, the connections between, you know, different departments and another department, the, you know, leadership and all these different things, like all those connections between all those entities that you discussed, like it's so hard in a remote environment and it's going to get harder and harder. And there aren't many good examples of companies that have scale in a remote environment. Uh, and so like, it's just, just so much pressure. And I love the connective tissue metaphor. Cause it, it you know, like it usually people talk about a, the company as a, as a human body um, with the, you know, the, the brain as the, the executives, the hands as the operations team, or maybe the heart is the operation team. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and there's, yeah, there's so much openness and creativity we can have with these metaphors and the connective tissue, the day by day, it's the same as an exercise um, practice. It's the same as a meditation practice. I've had a lot of coaching on meditation specifically. And, and, you know, like that, that you, when you sit down for 20 minutes and you just focus on your breath and the whole time you're thinking, oh, this isn't going well, this is really bad. This is shit. Like, and then afterwards you feel, oh, okay. I've had this relaxation. I've it's the instruction I've received so many times is don't really believe anything that's going on in your head during those 20 minutes, just do the thing. And then afterwards you can come back and as you said, reflect on the thing. And it really is like in an exercise program as well. I've, I've, I've gotten out of shape for the last like uh year. And so I'm starting to get back into shape and, um, and, and it's just like the, I'm, I've experienced it so many, so much in my life, that experience when you're first starting to exercise, really the hardest part is the activation exercise to actually get yourself to exercise. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then in those first, those first sessions, it's a nightmare basically until you're uh, like, it's just like, it's like, it's just such an emotional psychological thing. It's like, Oh, I don't like this at all. I don't like this at all, but then you continue to do it. And then over time it becomes fun. And, and, and it's actually like a, a gives you more energy rather than taking away. Yeah. Agree. Mm -hmm. Agree. Yeah. You know, I, I have this, I have this strange philosophical, philosophical theory. That's really very new for me, two or three years where our subjectivity is only our image. That's it. Right. Our mm -hmm. entire being mm -hmm. is a series of images that we've been building forever. It might just be that if they're just images, what does it matter if we're remote or in proximity? Yep. What does it really matter except for what we've learned to rely on because of the proximity? Which almost concludes, Stuart, that the real thing is the connective tissue, not the image that we're holding. Right. So that's it's a very fascinating way to look at the problem or conundrum of remote work because maybe it's not the problem we perceive it to be yeah, yeah. right it's um, the limit yeah it's the limitation it goes back to the limitation it's the perceived right. limitation it may be a perceived limitation and i think there's a lot of this i when when talking about remote, remote work i think it's good to bring in the historical examples because a lot of people think like remote work is just something that's shown up in the last 20 years but in reality remote work has been around since we had letter writing 
And like Roman emperors managed large empires. They didn't do it like particularly well. Like they couldn't, you know, it'd take like three months for their letters to get from Rome to, you know, Turkey. Uh, uh, but they were practicing remote work. Uh, and then you had telegrams, you had all, you had like large multinational companies have always had to be remote work because they've just had different offices. So it's like, um, so the, it, but, but now we have so many tools to do it that it can become much more convenient but it also takes a lot more creativity in how to actually, yeah. 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 I mean, imperialism, right? Colonialism, that's remote work. <laughs> I yeah. mean, how remote were we from the British? <laughs> I mean, it's remote work, right? We have solved these problems prior. Now, maybe the mechanisms that were allowable to solve them, right? Tyranny <laughs> aren't as tolerable anymore for sure, right? And, uh, and rightly so, I just wanna go on the record, rightly so. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not advocating for, for a return to that, but uh -huh. it, it is remote work. And it's funny to find, it's interesting, not even, um, and maybe humorous in some ways to find what we have not evolved much away from in terms uh, of how we manifest those things. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of goes brings it back to the coaching discussion as well, because then we can go into the emotions. The you know human beings are diverse and inter 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 individualness. We're very diverse, but at the like the principles are pretty much the same. That we all have these emotions: anger, shame, uh, guilt, um, you know, uh, uh, fear, uh, all all these different things. And 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 those those are so interesting, particularly in a work environment, because the work environment you don't. I mean, there is, you know, like bring your whole self to work thing, but I don't think that that's really true. I, I think like, no. you don't, you don't want to bring your whole self to work. You don't, you don't Nobody want to. Nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how much they would say it, like they're, they don't yeah. want to bring like the rageful two-year-old that's stuck inside every, every, every person. Right. Um, how, how, how can we think about emotions in the workplace and, 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 and how can, they be beneficial to our job? How can they be um, de deleterious to our job? How how does that work? Yeah, again, I, I love I love your questioning. Um, in in just the answering of it itself might insinuate that I'm some kind of expert. I want to say that again, I'm not right. But here's what I've discovered in my own path, and and that's really all I can speak to, is that really as of late and very recently, we have really started to embrace as a body of people the importance and critical quality of your emotional intelligence, mm. right? Um, we, we had a great explosion of multiple intelligence from Gardner, right? We mm. have all these writings now on EQ, and now we have this different lever where prior, especially in a Western um, thought and and uh, business in business and practice, the the thought was IQ was was king. IQ is king, right? Um, and it. It's not the case anymore, right? IQ is critical, like competency matters, right? But if you have, if you have the absolute, let's put it on a, a scale of one to 10, instead of using IQ scores, right? But if on a scale of one to 10, you are a plus 10 in IQ, but the same equidistant away from median in EQ, so let's call in terms of absolute value, distance away from zero, you're a minus 10 on EQ, you're not landing very well in your execution and efficacy, right? So our jobs as human beings now, and we're very aware of this across the board, this is not new anymore, is that that emotional intelligence and your EQ is absolutely hand in hand with your IQ, right? 
And if you want to maximize your IQ and that ability, then your EQ has to come up. Well, there are ways to do that. There are ways to make, to help us be more aware of our environment. Things that point back to us are going to limit our EQ. Things that point to the people that are around us and the people we love, want to love, maybe dislike or like, whatever varying degrees and gradients of that, right? That's critical for our for matching our IQ footprint. I could be the best test taker in the world, but if I can't apply it because I piss off everybody that I work with, or I alienate everybody. Well, then what's the value? It's well, we have other terms for that. I'm not going to say them over the mic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it goes to that social because EQ, emotional intelligence, the social emotions are social. They're so social, right? Like we, particularly in America, we have a individualist kind of context, which I love because I'm American. Like I loved the, the idea that we are individual and that we can do things against the crowd and, and we can do all the things. But at the same side, we're like deeply, deeply tribal in our, in our evolutionary makeup. Absolutely. And like, a, a, you know, like millions of years we were in tribes. And when you felt an emotion, that, that emotion was everybody else in that circle was feeling that emotion. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, that like it all comes to that social relationship and like and recognizing that we're we're an individual with our own emotions. But at the same time, we're connected and particularly inside of a workplace, we're connected through this which with that challenge that we were discussing before, which is that in our personal lives, we may be going through crazy, crazy, crazy stuff that is bringing up all sorts of emotions. And the work thing might be bringing up a lot of emotions as well. But it, it, it's not like that's one of the hard parts about about being professional as well is that some of that you don't bring to work as well um yeah okay so uh uh so you've been you've you've mentioned a few things about philosophy like i believe it was no it was kierkegaard um and uh i i think you may have uh, picked on the up on the fact that we're a lot of a lot of different philosophers are here at, at invisible and we like to talk philosophy a lot and and yeah. uh and so I would love to just kind of take it a little bit in there and also maybe bring AI into it as well. So let's actually start, start there. What is your take on AI? Have you been working in AI before you come came at it Invisible? And like, what's your general take on uh, AI and LLMs? Yeah, that's great. Um, I have not worked in it um, prior to my arrival here. Um, I, I was the CEO of a software development company. So on the tech side of things, uh, I have some familiarity, right? Um, I'm not an engineer myself, right? Again, I'm still conducting. I'm not the best performer in the room. I'm facilitating and hoping to bring people together to do a better product. That's It's really what I've done all of my life, no matter what the label was, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I. Um, but AI is, is fascinating to me. First of all, my first degrees are in metaphysics and legal theory. So I, I, oh, I, uh, I love this philosophical bent in the company, right? Um, uh, but for me, AI's purpose is almost no different than any other major advancement we've made in, in history, right? Here's an opportunity. The sky is not falling. Machines aren't going to take over, right? Yeah. We're still training AI. Right? We still have to provide parameters and borders to, for this to manifest in good and healthy ways, right? It's still very human-centric. What I love about the opportunities about AI, and this is really high level, high level thinking and not uh, lower level practical because I don't have the credentials to do the low level <laughs> practical applications here, but high level, I think we're humans are uh, always accepted that we're at the top of the food chain. We're not the strongest beings, 
We're not the most vicious. We're not the most crafty. We're not even the most endurable, right? But our strategy and our creativity puts us at the top. Mm. God, Stuart, I hope that AI enables that aspect of us back. Since the Industrial Revolution, we have celebrated being mundane. We've celebrated that success is how I put um, cash in the bank, right? Um, how I how I acquired two Mercedes, not one. How I, you know, um, all of those things that we all succumb to, right? I don't know. Maybe not you. You lived in a, a trailer in the snow, and and you're you're <laughs> so I, much well, better at that. Than only me. because I was trying to hold on to my Bitcoin. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so that very kind of pedantic rowing the boat function, right? We fight to be the in the front row of rowers or to be the rudder, or, you know, yeah. and if we're really good, we get to be um, uh, what is the diminutive person that sits there and shouts all the strokes in, in rowing, right? It's yeah. that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, we fight for that. And we claw for that. And I'm hoping that we can be a little bit more liberated because some of those repeatable processes and mundane things can be done, not by just AI. It really could have been done by a chimpanzee had we had the inclination to do it. And maybe that releases us to do those things that that we're so well-equipped to do philosophically. And I'm I'm very hopeful for that uh, because it's been a, a challenge for me growing up, uh, particularly with a bunch of ADD and a bunch of like very just kind of like my thoughts go in a lot of different ways. And it's been always very, very challenging me, challenging for me to fit into a society that requires sort of like this, this, I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the repetitive processes, like it's just not something that I can do, although I've learned to do it now. Um, uh, strategy and creativity. And it does, it seems from my understanding, as we go forward, I I'm in the same boat as you. I don't think, um, Skynet's going to come and, and destroy us all. I don't think these machines have a lot of capability of murdering human beings or causing all these different things. Like, there's this, you know, genetic engineering that they could engineer a virus. That's the, that's the thing that keeps on coming back as the existential risk. And yeah, maybe, may, maybe it could happen, but I, I I'm, I'm skeptical that that that's going to happen. Uh, uh, but it does seem from this that, all everything that I've been seeing, everything I've been using for it is that repetitive work may go away. A lot of it may go away. And so like what's left after that? Because if we go to that that right brain, left brain theory, um, which, you know, there's a lot of pop psychology. So it's not the right brain, left brain aren't separate uh, separate parts of the brain. But there's a great book. I'm forgetting his name. I think it's um, I'm forgetting the name, but the the master and his emissary, uh, which talks about the actual differences between the right and the left brain there are real differences and so uh, i'm actually forgetting that now but i believe it's the left brain which is the more logical um and the right brain is the more creative and uh you know like having like crazy uh type of mental imbalances and uh that's more like right brain and more holistic thinking like seeing things as they connect to each other but then if if it's over connection then gets into things like schizophrenia and other things like that and so it really feels like the left brain thing is about to get replaced by these AI bots. Like they're way more rational. And in some ways, the right brain stuff too, the the creativity, the art, like yeah. it, it is really weird. I'm not sure if you've been playing around with Mid Journey or Dolly, but it, it can get pretty weird. It can get pretty psychedelic uh, with the with those things. And so, yeah, it's like, and then where does that leave us as human beings? Like, I believe it's in that strategy and in that creativity. And there may not be other jobs left, but that I think is the most fulfilling to other to people as well as to be in that 
is to be in that creativity part. Although there's going to be a lot of people who are stuck in future shock, I think. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. what, what, what's your take on that? No, I agree completely. And there's no way to tell. I mean, if we take our finite understanding of what we understand about our brains and our current functions throughout the world, then yes, whatever AI takes away or subtracts from leaves us with less than what we started. Sure. But it's a very finite way to think about it, right? We have to include the, the algebra variable that we don't know X, Y, or Z, right? And so in that, I trust that because it's always been there. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, honestly, Stuart, if, if it wasn't there, if there was not that algebraic variable, I would be, I think, in jail. Right. I, I think I would be in jail. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a very not mm. favorable circumstance. Mm. And the direct manifestation of those circumstances should lead to X, Y and Z behaviors. If everything is that linear. It's not right. Almost nothing is that linear. Yeah, I think the only things that are that linear are are, are the way we digest it. <laughs> yeah, and, right? and this brings to the philosophy is like, yet we all view things, maybe it's through the last couple of hundred years of the Industrial Revolution and like the linear stuff, but maybe it's just like a human nature thing and the mm -hmm. image, the images that we create and believing those images to be reality rather than the images like, and yet at the same time, life and reality are seem to be really complex if we slow down and look at it. Like you said, there's this variable that led to you living this life that shouldn't have by all means happened. And then there's a similar right. case for myself. And I know a lot of other people. A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is like these things behind us that we can't really see. They're just like so complex. And there's actually a great, great talk by Stephen Wolfram, uh, who just came out on a TED talk where he talks about the computational uh, computation irreducibility um, and talking about how in the abstract world, we've got this whole con computational universe, like all the computer programs that could exist. Um, and then, uh, but in order to find out what happens in the future, there are these variables, like you said, that cannot be modeled. You have to actually go through each step in order to get there. Um, right. And so this is why you can't predict things. People talk about science as a predictive thing, but we still can't predict it. We still can't mm -hmm. predict the future. Like it's 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 beyond our ability, beyond and it, like it's a physical limitation of the universe that we can't actually predict it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. No, and that's a fantastic thing because it's it's very easy for us to all want the black and white picture, right? Yeah. The black and white of quality or the binary quality of anything is easier to digest. We love to live in it. That's why we have constructs of religion and God that that label it and are formed down to, you know, whether they're the Ten Commandments or these principles or these rules that you have to follow, right? All those things are about reconciling the grayness, right? But if we can find ourselves loving the grayness, <laughs> yes. it's Love great. Now yes. I have gray hair, so I'm beginning to appreciate that. Let's <laughs> go on your way. <laughs> Uh, so we got five minutes left. Uh, let's talk about the, it's, it keeps on coming up, the 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 um, composer. You're a composer to 200, 300 people. And it just it feels like such a, it, obvious relationship to a business. Uh, and then maybe, actually, yeah, that's the question. Like, can you give a brief explanation of how you started to compose and then where also you started the, the software company? And like whether yeah. those two things are related, and also oh, yeah, that's about that fantastic. mind, yeah, the, yeah. The, the 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 fact that you can compose and get all these minds into one mind to make beauty, basically. Yeah, no, that's great, and I'm, I want to make a, a small a kind of um, syntax uh, correction, if I may, 
composers are very different than conductors. Conductors, interesting, yeah. yeah. Right? And performers are very different than conductors who are very different than composers, mm -hmm. okay? And so uh, performers get a full page to which they have to manifest, right? Composers have a full head and a blank page which they have to manifest. Uh, interesting. Conductors have to be the conduit to the performers and the composers. We are the mediators. We're the people that reconcile, here's what I think this was meaning, what he's after, let's do it this way. And, in, and I only bring that up because in, the, in that progression or in that existence, the conductor plays a critical role. The inspiration to others happens in the way I'm able to digest the intent of the composer and how I'm able to apply it to the relevancy of the people playing it or singing it. Same with coaching. Nothing new is happening in coaching. Nothing. Uh, but the manner in which I'm able to digest it, manifest it, is the mechanism of inspiration. And that's part charisma, of course. That's part vocabulary. That's part, um, some people have a very quick bridge of this mechanism, the speech mechanism, and it's connected directly to the thought. Some people have to go through filters before they can do that. Conductors are the people who don't have to think about that process. Mm -hmm. It comes. Good conductors. Mm -hmm. There are bad conductors and good conductors. And I think mm -hmm. good conductors are connected to that, right? Um, so think of it as the conduit between left and right brain, if we need to go back to black and white kind of thinking, right? And so if in that model, I'm successful as a coach, as a conductor, then it can be applied to every vertical on the planet, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I worked at Bear Stearns in Manhattan, I started an ad agency for which P&G was a client, right? Um, I played sports, I coached sports. I started a software company. I helped start a credit card processing company. All of those things are just vehicles. Can I drive? That's really it. <laughs> I can operate a clutch, a gas pedal, and a steering wheel, right? Wow, that's so interesting. And so, yeah, so it, it doesn't matter the application because if your IQ is high enough, and I don't mean you have to be a genius or something stupid like that, but if your IQ is is high enough and you've practiced absorption of different verticals without the biases or fears, then the world is your oyster, right? Beautiful. I maintain that because I didn't have a safety net growing up. I didn't develop the normal fears that other people's or peers that I had. I was always... If I don't do it, it doesn't happen and I starve, <laughs> right? It was always that way. I didn't have a safety net. So that trained me, right? My EQ is higher because as a kid, I had to look around the room to make sure I wasn't pissing anybody off and get the shit beat out of me, right? I mean, those things were inherent in me and my training. I swear to you, I say this a lot. My friends hear it from me all the time. I don't think I'd become a great musician or a good solid musician and conductor had I not had my childhood. Because I it taught you to essentially tune in to that. So you can actually tune in to 200 to 300 different people in front of you as that all part of one thing. It's just, it's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also when I sat down to play the piano, they left me alone. <laughs> So I did more of that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. Beautiful. Mm -hmm.
Well, thank you so much for coming on uh, Plainsight. And uh, where can people find you either if they're in the invisible realm or they're just listening to this outside the invisible realm? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn, Carl with a K, Thompson, no P, S-E-N. Um, you can email me. You can call me. My name. I don't hide my uh, digits on LinkedIn or on Facebook. I'm an open book. Um, if you approach me and I think you're weird, I may shut you down, but... <laughs> <laughs> but i oh, doubt thanks, it um, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much Stuart. thank you i appreciate it hey thanks for tuning into plain sight presented by invisible if you liked what you heard be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network and if you're interested in learning more about how invisible helps teams cut costs and scale visit our website at invisible.co see you next time